Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Almost Better Than Silence. I'm your host, Doug Coleman, and I'm here today with the other host, Brendan McCullough, and we have a special guest joining us today, Chuck Carter, who's responsible for working on numerous games, uh, specifically uh, Myst and some of the Command & Conquer games. Uh, how are you doing, Chuck? Not too bad. Good to be here. How are you guys doing? Oh, doing great. Doing pretty good. Got a belly full of burritos, and I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> a pizza. Nice. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. A piece of pizza, anyway, and so. <laughs> so I guess let's first talk to you about how your um, experience in the game industry all began. Like, so um, th- is Mist the first project you ever worked on? Well, Mist was the the first actually official project I worked on uh, back in uh, 1989. I saw Cyan's first game, which was called The Manhole, and it was this little black and white uh, exploration game where you kind of went down a manhole cover and went down into the water and it was this really nicely hand-drawn sort of thing with uh i think robin miller drew it all and he did it in mcpaint but the idea behind it was to create this world that you can kind of you know follow through much like what mist is and after that i designed something called the magic shop and another little thing called the abc house uh which broderbun at the time was interested in and um that sort of opened the eyes to cyan who just happened to live in the same city spokane washington that I was living in, and um, they saw that stuff and some other 3D work and hired me from Mist, and so Mist was really the uh, start of my career, true start of my career anyway. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I'm just curious, because I went to school in recent years for like some graphic design and some game design stuff, and I know that I did some 3D modeling in Blender and uh, Autodesk Maya, for instance. I'm just curious, how were you capable of make, creating your renders back uh, in like the early 90s? Well, back then, we had there was a, a very limited number of 3D programs available, uh, especially on the Macintosh. There was, uh, I think, maybe four programs that I can think of off off offhand, and uh, talk about primitive. I mean, you know, you had you had only a lathe and extrude controls. That was really about it. Oh wow! So you couldn't really do very much, you know, with po- with points or faces or edges or subdivision surfaces. None of that stuff existed in the in the low end machine, low end commercial software that was available at the time. Yeah. So we, in essence, kind of like. You know, you, you you extrude out a bunch of shapes that were supposed to be kind of a, you know, part of an object and a bunch of lathes to make other parts of objects. And you kind of just sort of put it together and make it look like something. And that was pretty much uh, how we made Mist based on that type of technology. Oh, awesome. Very minor animation tools uh, that we used to do some of the animation in Mist. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was very primitive by today's standard. So... Another question I was thinking about, like, just the general uh, game design of Myst, how did they approach you? Like, did they say, oh, we need a certain amount of renders from you that, and we need these specific ones? Or did you have, like, a creative uh, sort of leeway to come to them with different renders and be like, is this going to fit with the game? Well, it, the way it sort of started out was uh, we had been talking for quite a while, and then they wanted me to... Uh, you know, they were, they were saying they had this project that they wanted to do. And uh, they weren't really being real clear about what it was. They were keeping it very secret at the time. And uh, the very first day I started at the company, we did a, uh, in I think it was Chris Brandcamp, who was one of the three partners, was Rand, Robin Miller, and him, Chris. And we were at his house, and they read a walkthrough, like a text-based walkthrough of the entire game missed. And so we had a, a pretty good idea. I had a pretty good idea of what they were looking for visually just by the way they were describing it. And they had some real loose drawings for the maps. Okay. And Robin simply assigned me uh, two of the maps and a final map and said, here, um, come up with some sketches, some ideas. And uh, pretty much from that point on, it was, uh, you know, I just did whatever I felt like doing for the most part. That's awesome. Yeah, I just know... Uh, personally, for me, Mist was one of uh, one of the first games I ever really played, and it on, and I after doing some research, apparently, is one of the first games on CD-ROM in general. So it's just a staple in gaming history. So that's pretty cool that you got to work on that project. Yeah, uh, a lot of people bought CD-ROM players just to play it. I mean, there were other games before Mist, obviously, but uh, Mist was the one that sort of popularized the whole CD-ROM, you know, as a game uh, delivery device more than anything else. I think at the time, totally. Um, so then what would you say was the next, uh, stepping stone in your game industry career after Myst? Um, I went, uh, I left Cyan right after finishing up publishing Myst or when Myst went, um, uh, to Broderbund uh, to finally, it was out on a market. I 
left Cyan and then I went to uh, Westwood Studios. And I worked on a series of games there um, for about a year and a half. And then kind of got out of the game industry for a little bit, did some consulting for a bunch of companies. But then I came back uh, about 1998. And uh, when I came back in 1998, I was immediately put on the uh, Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun uh, game. And oh, I was... Nice. Uh, designated as a concept, not a concept, excuse me, uh, a cinematic artist. So I, along with the rest of the cinematics teams, we basically built all the cinematics for it. Um, and then we're involved with the shooting, making the background sets that we put the actors over. And uh, so I guess that was like the next big game that I worked on right after that. Oh, cool. So then what kind of software were you utilizing for that? Was it like kind of different than like, was it an improvement, so to speak? <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah. When I when I worked at Westwood back in '94 and '95, we were using 3D Studio. It was called at the time. Before it was called 3 Studio Max or whatever yeah. it's now. Um, and it was it was a very powerful program. You could you know you built everything from a polygon and built it outward. It was pretty much how we built all of our objects. So that was like the first step in my getting out of using Macintosh based stuff, working on PC based software, and, and in particular uh, 3D Studio. Uh, and then when I came back, I left for a while, then I came back and um, I got really heavily uh, involved in using uh, Lightwave. There were a lot of other artists at the at the Westwood Studios who uh, used Lightwave, and there was this kind of division between the Lightwave users and the 3D Studio users, 3D Max users. And so we were kind of in the Lightwave crowd, and, and the other guys are in the other crowd. And, and then we dabbled with Max, uh, excuse me, with Maya for a while. And uh, so it, it really just depended on the project for the most part. But uh, lightweight for the most part, they're mostly Maya. I didn't get into 3D Studio Max for a while after that, actually. Okay, interesting. Um, and then I, I guess then what you're doing lately, if I'm not mistaken, you're head of Eager Games, which is its own studio now? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm uh, basically the founder and the head of Eager Games. Uh, we're based out of Orono, Maine. Oh, great. It's funny, uh, this interview is actually happening all thanks to alphabetagamer.com for referring uh, you guys to us on Twitter, so we're really grateful for that. And if our listeners are unfamiliar with that name, uh, you shouldn't be, because we've talked about them on the show in the, in the past, but it's basically a website that features uh, all the latest upcoming indie games, where you can actually play some alphas and betas and stuff, much like the name suggests. But uh, they actually featured your upcoming game, Zed, on there, and mentioned a Kickstarter. Would you want to talk about that for a little? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, for one thing, Zed has been a, a game that has been in, in design production now for about uh, close to a year, and now we're in the process of full production with it. And uh, essentially the game is just, it's about a dreamer who's dying, and he's suffering from dementia, uh, but he's still aware, aware enough to know that there's something he has to finish for his granddaughter, and he can't remember what that is. So you are essentially in his dreams and, and in some places in his memories uh, to help him find what it is he has to do to help him actually make this final gift for his granddaughter before he dies. And uh, you have to help him remember by kind of putting together, um, connecting all the dots, so to speak, through a series of puzzles and, and uh, you know, different types of uh, challenging areas that you have to navigate through, stuff like that. So that's pretty much what the game is about. Uh, we're trying to do it with a very, very uh, unique art style. I, I'm very inspired by a number of artists, and I as well as some of my own stuff that I like to always kind of pull into things based around some of my own dreams and things. So oh, that's okay. pretty much what, what Zed is essentially about. You know, it's, it's an odd series of worlds that you not only explore, but you have to navigate through a series of puzzles to put things together. Yeah, that's it, it looks visually stunning. And like, I can see a little bit of like, yeah, the mist feel to it. Um, you said in that that you were you have some certain uh, inspiration when it comes to artists. Uh, do you mind naming any? Uh, sure. Um, there's a children's book illustrator who is a current favorite of mine now, a guy named Sean Tan. Uh, you know, look up some of his books. Uh, the Arrival is a wonderful one. Uh, the Lost Thing, which uh, won a, there was an animation done on that recently, and it won an, uh, I guess it won an Oscar. Uh, so uh, his work is, is, is inspiring, but I mean, I'm influenced by a lot of other artists as well, obviously. I, you know, John Harris is a science fiction illustrator whose work, or James Harris is a Science fiction illustrator whose work I've always admired. Uh, I can go way back to comic books. I mean, you know, a lot of different artists way back in the early days of comics. Jack Kirby, um, you know, Bernie Wrightson, 
you know, you get down into some of the other illustrators, uh, like uh, Mobius, for instance. I've always been highly inspired by Mobius's work, his his sense of depth and 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 the worlds he creates. That you look at an image that he's made, and you get really sucked into it. And you know, and it's something that you know, while I'm not copying Mobius, I do like that ability to be able to create something and and put you into it and make you want to go around the corner or go down that path and see what's there to to draw you into the world. And so, artists that do that for me are you know, inspiring me to kind of do that for whoever I'm building the the worlds for when I make the games. Definitely. It's incredible when I notice in all the screenshots and stuff of Zed, it, there's no real, like, people or characters, so you don't have some creature, like, dragging you down a certain pathway, like, telling you where to go when it's the art leading you on itself, like, speaking to you uh, in the just the design and layout of it. It's incredible. I really can't compare it to anything else. Thank you. Yeah, I, it seems like a very uh, peaceful thing. In fact, one of the things I read is that, yeah, there's no real, I, I don't think there's a danger of like, uh, like running into an enemy, so to speak. So like, it seems like for me, I actually suffer from anxiety a lot of the time. And in fact, there's been numerous times where I'd had to cancel the podcast because I was having a panic attack. But like, it seems like it, this is a kind of game I could just kind of relax and play. Yeah, that's the one thing that we've noticed from a lot of the comments we're getting from people who played the demo, uh, that it's it's almost meditative. And, you know, which is something that, um, you know, my, my own philosophy is I, I, I want to slow people down enough to where they can enjoy where they're at in the game, uh, but also to think about when you actually come across the puzzles and things like that for uh, the actual gameplay portion of it, that uh, it, it, you're slowing down enough so you can actually look around and, and see things because all the, all the clues and everything that, that helps you through the puzzles are based in the environment. And in order to have an environment where you want to look through, you don't want to be chased. You don't want to be having to, uh, you know, figure out some kind of, uh, you know, uh, stopwatch. You know, you have to get from here to here a certain amount of time. You know, I don't want to put pressure on people to find, you know, the various answers for the clues. Now, that's not to say that the world itself would be all nice, bright, and sunny. Um, as you noticed when you started the game, uh, the demo, you're in this very dark place. And, and that has a little bit more of a reflection of my dream um, kind of, I guess, the dream symbology that we all develop. I mean, I dream in black and white in color. And so part of the game is designed to be black and white and have a different mood to it. As well as when you get into the game itself, into the other levels, you'll see that not all of it is, is, is um, let's say, you know, bright and cheery, as I said before, but there are areas where there are darker corners and, and dark corridors and things that reflect other aspects of your mind as you're dreaming not that you're going to be chased but i do want to put a bit of sense of an a bit of edge on on the scene or on the scene and in the world so that way you know you you get a chance to experience a whole range of emotions and atmospheric um uh you know design that we're trying to do for the game yeah it seems like a very ambitious project and that leads me to to the kickstarter in fact by the time this episode airs there should be three to four days still left and i i encourage our listener to go check out this kickstarter and back this project but uh it seems like you guys are closing in on the on making this reality so i'm rooting for you guys (laughs) (laughs) thank you did you have any plans for using any other platforms besides kickstarter like gofundme or indiegogo or any of those uh, right now, the plans, you know, are, are pretty much just let's finish up the Kickstarter. We've got some other things in the works mm-hmm. uh, that we're looking at for funding resources, you know, sources. Uh, but uh, we haven't really thought much beyond a Kickstarter as far as you know, uh, crowdfunding goes. Well, oh, okay. here's a question about Eager Games, the studio. Like, how large is your team, so to speak? Uh, we're pretty small. I mean, we have um, a couple of people in Cleveland, uh, one in Boston, Seth, who you guys have talked to, I think. Oh, that's right. Right, and uh, Josh, who's in New York, and I've got uh, two people here in Bangor with me, my programmer, Calvin, and uh, another artist, uh, a young kid um, who's uh, phenomenally talented, uh, who's doing, when I, I'm handing him off a bunch of the art that I normally would be doing myself and then, and happily do it, you know, he's, wow. he's a lot of talent. So he's, him and Calvin are here in Bang, in the Bangor area, we're in Orno, but we're near Bangor, Maine, um, and uh, the studio itself is located in a, uh, it's uh, an incubator, a business incubator, startup incubator, uh, which is great. We've got fiber optic, which, you know, you really need when you're uploading and downloading files in the size of gigabytes. So, Oh, totally. Yeah, and it's kind of nestled in the woods, too. It's like this building is a fairly big building, but it's surrounded by woods and swamps, and it's great. You can get out there and, and see some green, you know, which is one of the reasons I moved to Maine. So working in this is even better yet. Okay. I'm um, sure. Were you ever afraid of moving up to Maine after reading any of the Stephen King books? Because it seems like that's 
exclusively where every story takes place. Oh, I know, I know. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm a huge fan of King. I've always been a big fan of Stephen King's work ever since he first came out with Carrie. And mm-hmm. um, oh God, I live two <laughs> blocks from I live two blocks from his his Bangor home. He's rarely ever there. He lives mostly on the west side of the state in the summer. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I live two blocks from his big, gigantic red Victorian mansion. You know, that's a scary house when you look at that house. It's <laughs> scary house for a scary guy. Scary house for a scary guy. All the trees are alive, though. There's not like a bunch of dead trees around. <laughs> you but, see, uh, actually, uh, before I started the studio here, um, we were in a building that was part of one of his other stories. And um, oh, really? it's kind of cool. Yeah. So it was uh, the building was downtown Bangor. And this it was a huge you know, a uh, block of buildings all kind of interconnected. And there was some, something I remember reading and one of the guys who knows some of his work and what he's done locally, uh, says that that part of that building was, I guess, a resource, part of a source of one of his stories. And in the game itself, actually, we've got something called the standpipe, which is this gigantic tower. Uh, if you've played it, you saw that big red and blue tower with the stars on it. Mm-hmm. That's based off an actual structure here in Bangor. So, oh, cool. Oh, and, wow. that's, and Stephen King considers that like one of the one of the sources of evil, and I think in the Stand and a couple of other of his books. So you can't escape Stephen King in this area. Trust me, <laughs> he's claimed to mean pretty much. Yeah. Well, uh, here's something I have. I asked our Twitter fan base if they had any questions for you, and we only got one question, unfortunately, because our Twitter fan base is uh, growing. But uh, we did get a question from at Tattooed Bananas, and they said, "Why did you ruin my middle school years with your game?" And they were referring to to Mist. So, <laughs> well, no, we, we went out of our way, you know, purposely to disrupt as many lives as possible and to pick their pockets of money. <laughs> to be able to have what was considered one of the best-selling games of all time back in the 90s anyway. So seriously, it was done on purpose. <laughs> nice answer. And thank you for buying the game. Oh, awesome. Uh, do you have any questions, Bren, specifically? I've been, like, stealing the show, I think. No, no problem. Um, yeah, I know with the genre of, like, sort of point-and-click, like, puzzle-esque or, like, pseudo-adventure, whatever you wish to call it, um, it was very popular after your game specifically missed it you know inspired so many and for a while it dipped that genre dipped down a bit because all the consoles were coming out and all the shooters and fps shooters and all that uh but i've noticed that a lot of puzzle point and click adventures are coming back specifically to pc now and one of the most notable cases i can think of is the witness which was jonathan blow's game right and like i'm wondering if this is maybe you know sort of a reemergence of that genre and with zed maybe you can help bring it more light to it even further like do you think this is kind of a you know the best time it could come out i think so because you know you you really have to look back and 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 uh, take a look at what games have been coming out over the last couple of years that that fit within that genre you know i mean you you got journey which is this this absolutely beautiful gorgeous game uh you know done by sony and then you've got uh dear esther i don't know if you've heard of dear esther or not but yeah you know, that's, that's, that's more of a walkabout, but it's a narrated walkabout where you're going along and the story is kind of unveiled as you go from point to point. And it's a very, very sad story, but it, it, it really draws you into the environment. And, uh, that, that's another one of those games. And then they came up with, uh, everyone's gone to the rapture after that. So, you know, and then the Stanley Parable, which is a really wonderful, fun little game, which I really like a lot, mm-hmm. uh, is very similar. Again, it's, it's not necessarily 100% puzzle based. It's more, the environment's kind of stretchy and changes on you constantly. Uh, but this genre, I think it seems to be that people are looking for ways to kind of slow down a little bit. I think we're hitting it at a really good time when, you know, there's so much violence in games that I think some parents are also, and, and people are maybe looking for something that it's not, you know, like a, a little pixel scrolling side scroller or it's not a big shooter game or anything else. They want to find something that kind of fits in between that. And I think that the genre is starting to come back alive uh, because of that, that, that niche seems to be needing to be filled again. And so I think for us, it's a, it's a great time uh, to be doing this sort of thing. And, and, uh, you know, obviously we're inspired by games like The Witness and, and, uh, you know, there's a Talus principle and Anna Chamber, which is really interesting. So there's a lot of games that are slowly kind of emerging in that genre, that puzzle based exploration genre, adventure genre. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're going to be part of that. And I hope we do something that's different enough that will set us apart from everybody else. And I really think we are. I, you know, I think that from the feedback we're getting, we're really establishing our own unique uh, identity with what we're doing. 
Mm-hmm. And I know you worked with some of the McCraw Hill uh, company and some of their textbook, or they're the big textbook company. Right. So, yeah. And I can remember thinking back to games like Myst and all these early puzzle games I played as a child. I, you know, didn't beat them because I was about six, but, you know, having that puzzle mechanic in my head and knowing how to sort through puzzles and have a visual, you know, capacity of like do- solving things in my head definitely helped me out later in life and definitely was a critical part to my learning development at such a young age. So it's great to see games are kind of heading back towards that now with a newer generation that won't be growing up on Gears of War or, you know, God of War or all these games where you're just slaughtering everything and not really thinking. Right. Because I remember some of the, you know, standardized testing questions I had on the SATs. Like, I remember thinking back when I was a kid solving some of these puzzles in games and how it, I already knew the answer because of the puzzle. Well, so, you know, it, it, that sort of game does force you to think. I mean, it's definitely critical thinking uh, beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and my background besides doing the game stuff is, you mentioned McGraw-Hill. I, I co-authored a geology, a college geology textbook for them uh, with a, a few other geologists uh, back in 2006 and made some, you know, and worked on a geography book and a nurse science book since then as well. Um, and right now, you know, there's this part of me that loves the science part and the puzzle part uh, that makes you think, you know, I mean, you know, we support the company by doing work for NASA and NASA keeps me probably busy for about a good third of the day and the rest of the day goes towards the game. Uh, but it does support the company, that money I make from NASA work right now. And But uh, the thing that's fun about NASA is I get a chance to learn something different every time. And, and to be honest, if you looked at the demo, uh, the one thing you notice in there is there's a a large kind of like a, or a small little itty bitty blue giant, you know, sun sitting in there with a star, like a big sun floating over the top of it. And I love to bring the science stuff into whatever I'm working on because I think it adds a little extra dimension to things. It may be something very subtle. In most cases, it will be very subtle, but there will be some clues that will require a little bit of, you know, obviously all clues and puzzles require critical thinking, but we want to really make sure that some of this stuff is also based in some of the, the science stuff that I'm doing as well. Wow, that's really exciting. And I don't know, just bringing the puzzle aspect and just astronomy together, I don't know, that's exciting. How often do you get to whip out, hey, I've worked with NASA, like <laughs> at like a party or something? I, like I've got about 35 pieces for them this year already. That is so oh, cool. So like, crazy. for instance, you're, you're doing renders of uh, planets or galaxies? Um, a little bit of everything. I do stuff for uh, the astrophysics of Caltech and JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, I do a lot of work for a lot of separate institutions that are uh, making propositions and proposals to NASA, and they need those things illustrated uh, so that they either can go to explain what the scientists or the you know, developers are trying to, you know, to get money for or funding for. My work goes to explaining a lot of that. It covers geology, geography, uh, star formation, planet formation, um, you know, trying to explain logarithmic scale. I never knew anything about it until I, I did an illustration and had to explain it. So I had to learn about logarithmic scale. And uh, wow. so it's they keep me extremely busy, which I'm really happy. I had one, one, one illustration I did for an astrophysicist, uh, a physicist friend of mine. Um, Greg Helen and uh, he did he through a whole bunch of different observations using all kinds of different telescopes and instruments he came up with an actual uh, proof that brown dwarf stars which are not much bigger than Jupiter actually have an aurora around the top a huge aurora borealis uh, that kind of like gaseous you know curtain uh, that's really bright lights you see the northern lights yeah uh, on top of the star and he was the first person to actually kind of measure it and be able to do it. And I did a little illustration for him of a brown dwarf with an aurora on it. it. took me about two or three hours to do it for him. I did it for free. And then I get this call from a buddy of mine who says, hey, did you see the Washington Post today? And I said, no. And he goes, go to the Washington Post. And right there in the front was my brown dwarf. Huh. And before I knew it, that brown dwarf illustration, along with Greg's paper, uh, was published in about four or 5,000 different publications worldwide. And it went totally viral. And I had people sending it to me from Singapore, from uh, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Norway, friends of mine all over the world who were just suddenly finding these these images. Chuck, you did this, you know, because it credited me with a lot of it, you know, not to mention all the U.S. newspapers and online, you know, publications. So sometimes this stuff goes and crazy viral. And uh, you obviously, I mean, I'm looking at it and go, you know, this is like two or three hours worth of work. It wasn't 
that hard of an illustration, but it was fun to see how exactly that thing got that caught on in all the different news sources. So that was that was a fun thing to do, and I didn't get paid a penny for it. So oh, geez, <laughs> it as a favor, and I'm happy to do it as a favor for Greg. He's a great guy. That's still that's a cool story. <laughs> oh man, that's that's got to be one of like the few times where I've heard like, oh, you can work for like free or for exposure, and it actually pays off in a great way. <laughs> it it does. I mean, I got paid for everything else I did for him, so mm-hmm. he just said, hey, can you do this for me? I really need it, you know. And I said, okay, okay, I won't charge you, you know. I mean, <laughs> next time we get together, if we get together sometime at JPL, he'll probably end up buying me dinner, and that's plenty, you know. So there you go. Yeah. Nice. Do you get ever get like a request for an illustration or something or a concept that is just so like mind blowing? You look at the guy and you're just like, oh come on, like how am I supposed to draw this? Like, you know, something <laughs> insane like the inside of a black hole or something. Uh, I've, done, I've done an illustration of the inside of a black hole once. So. <laughs> oh wow! What <laughs> no, an example! I used a lot of the same stuff that they used in the movie Interstellar for kind of trying to figure out what that might have looked like, and uh, it was you know. But I I have to listen to what these guys tell me. They they have a lot of you know, ideas about what this stuff looks like. And I just have to kind of like pick their brains to figure it out. But strange things. I mean, a lot of the stuff can be pretty odd. Um, there's this, this one thing about uh, tiles. Um, uh, these tiles are about a foot. They're, they're like a, a hexagonal shaped tile. And they fold in half and they'd be dropped out of a spaceship across the surfaces. You know, like a long stream of these things would be crossed, uh, dropped on Mars. And they would do everything from take observations for atmosphere and and light measurements and and uh, also to working with being able to extract uh, various uh, compounds out of the atmosphere to make water and uh, hydrogen and jet fuel and things like that. So, I mean, that was that was a pretty interesting set of illustrations. They wanted them on on Titan. They wanted them on Mars. They wanted them up in space. You know, so I was like putting tiles everywhere I can imagine to put a tile on asteroids. You know, it's like, okay, how many uses can I make for this tile? So that that was an interesting one. It was like, you know, and they kept coming up with ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put them on Mercury. Circled sun with them, you know. And I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Whatever you guys want, you know, you're paying me. So. so That's crazy. As someone who does, like, this kind of work for NASA, uh, and then in your free time you started a game studio, you obviously have a passion for gaming. Do you find much time to actually game in your free time? To play games? Yes. Uh, not as much lately. It's It's been, you know, the NASA stuff slowly dwindling now. It's the season. The NASA season's over. Okay. So, which is good, you know. <laughs> it gives me a chance to focus this summer on the game much, much more, plus playing games. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a, I got a, a bunch of games that I've got kind of sitting in a pile I have to play, or at least on Steam, that I haven't touched yet. The backlog. <laughs> the backlog. Yeah, I'll get to them someday. I think the last big game I, I finished was uh, Castle Wolfenstein, so that was like that was the last one I finished. I, I started. I started playing Witness, and I got you know maybe about three hours into it, and and just started beating my head against the screen. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't. Nobody else has done that with that game, but oh uh, yeah, I didn't actually play it myself, but I helped a buddy of mine while he was streaming it. So he was streaming it, and I was helping him with some of the puzzles. And my God, I've never felt dumber in my entire <laughs> life. Like at a certain point, I just gave up, and I was like. Hey, maybe this would be a cool idea while I have the walkthrough on my other monitor that he can't see. <laughs> well, that's exactly how I felt too. It's just like, okay, but then when I feel really dumb, I I, I kind of then, you know, I, I try even harder, and then I even feel worse later on. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm getting old. You know, my 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 brain doesn't work quite as well as it used to. <laughs> Uh, that's the moment when I always have to like take a step back or like take some time off from the game, like come back in an hour and see if I'm any better. And typically, I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> a couple days break t- t- tends to kind of unwind whatever it was that you you wound up when you're playing a game that kind of held you back. I always find that giving myself a break of a couple of days or even a week, and I get back to it, I find that it goes much faster and it seems to click better for some reason. You know, it's like uh, the backlog is is better. You know, you've you've cleared the trash, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I could see that with certain games. Not Bloodborne, though. Don't recommend it. <laughs> Right, that one I won't worry about. <laughs> Doom, I'm waiting to, to sit down and play, and I just I haven't sat with it yet. But <laughs> oh, I was very, nice. I was very skeptical about it, and I was glad to be proven wrong. Apparently, the single player is great and very entertaining. So I've heard I've heard the same thing too. So yeah. forward to it. the one game I'm waiting for though is is No Man's Sky. Oh, without uh, a yeah. doubt. I think it got pushed back to August. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. keep pushing it back, but you know, it's it's uh, that that's a game. I mean, I you know, I love space. No Man's Sky, you can just go out. You know, I just want to be an explorer. I don't want to fight anybody. 
you know, I want to go explore and, and name worlds and stuff like that. That to me sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I remember with Spore and how big of a game that was, and especially at the end of it, you got to the space age and you could explore the entire galaxy, and it felt like an entire ga- galaxy. Like it was so massive. But then at the core of the galaxy, there's like a galactic empire that would attack you and stuff. And I was like, ah, come, I like, can I just explore and see all the different worlds and our wildlife and different civilizations? Right, right. Yeah, that, that sort of exploration, I mean, just purely exploratory. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of value in that. And I think that that's one of the things that these, these, these newer games, these, uh, that slow you down, even though they have puzzles in them, they, most people, most game companies put the puzzles in them, not necessarily to, um, you know, uh, to thwart people from going into the game. They put it to slow people down, more or less. And I think, you know, it's, it's you know, I mean, I, I saw some previews for Abduction, uh, which is being made by Cyan, my former company I worked at. Um, that looks absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, I saw, saw some of the puzzles that they have that they've done in their, their VR demo that they were doing. And, and um, you know, it's like, holy crap, you know, I'm going to go turn these things. And after a while, i got to ask myself, is that a little bit too much? But... Uh, <laughs> You know, but the thing is, is that I, I think people add a lot of these things in order to slow things down a little bit, not necessarily because it enhances the gameplay, but to keep it from being called a walkabout, you know, and there seems to be a bad term walkabout these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If the game's only like five hours, it's like quick throw some, you know, breakable walls and it'll just add four hours more gameplay because it just slows you down so much. Yeah, I think what we're doing is we're we're adding all kinds of little things uh, behind all the broken areas, like where if you if you search hard enough, you find a glitch, you can get behind a wall, and uh, and then we might have a little thing in there like a foot or something, you know, so <laughs> you can find or misreference someplace or oh, nice. hide it. So if you break the game, you can find little hidden treasures all over the place. So that's pretty. Guys cool. are doing stuff like that. You know, it's so much fun to to break a game and find that the designer has actually anticipated the game being broken and put stuff in places that, you know, unless you break it, you don't find it. I love Easter eggs myself. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned VR in that. Um, do you foresee like if best case scenario, would you ever want to work on some VR projects with eager games? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Zed is, is being designed and works great with the Oculus. We're waiting on our five kit right now. So oh my gosh, so it, we, we've had the Oculus with it now and played with it for, gosh, uh, at least the last four or five months. No, actually since, yeah, yeah maybe around February or so. Um, and it works amazing. I mean, the, the feeling inside of uh, when you're in a game and you've got the VR headset on, it's, uh, if you like the graphics the way they look, you know, on a 2D screen, imagine what they look like when you can get right up on them or look around in, in 360 degrees up or down. Oh, that changes everything. Yeah, I'm really excited. It really does, and it makes the game even more enjoyable. And and uh, but just you know, you really do get lost in those worlds in the VR. And VR tends to do that with almost any game that you use it with, especially any games that have a uh, very well thought out environment. Um, you know, but we we're we're going to utilize it as much as we can uh, with our VR version of it. We're going to release the VR version at the same time we plan on releasing uh, the Mac, PC, and the Linux versions of it. Okay, great. And do you have any console plans for Zed? It's understandable if not. I'm just curious. Well, down, down the road, we'd love to see it on a console. I think right now it's not necessarily a priority. We want to make sure that this works on, you know, surprisingly the way it works on, on Linux. It's going to be great on Steam with SteamOS. Awesome. And, uh, actually, the Linux version works better than, than the Mac or the PC by far. And <laughs> Wow. That'll make some nerds happy. It will, definitely. And, you know, with, with SteamOS, it should even be better yet. And, uh, you know, our programmer, Kelvin, uh, just was playing around with, with, with it on a, on a Linux machine and, and he hit the, uh, the, the build or the, what was it? It was, I'm not sure if he did it on a PC or not. He may have done it just on the PC, but he hit the, uh, you know, uh, package for Linux, but just to see what would happen. And bam, there it was. It was just like right there. It's small, it's tight, and it plays at about, you know, 80, 90 frames a second. Nice. He was using. So, I mean, it was pretty amazing wow. how well. And then we decided, hey, let's let's have a Linux version of it. You know, we put it out and and bam, there you go. Three different platforms almost instantaneously. That's the nice thing about using Unreal uh, as our engine because it does allow you to output to virtually um, every single platform that exists out there. Oh, great. I I was meaning to ask that and forgot. So I'm glad you mentioned that. (laughs) (laughs) I always made a comparison that using a Mac was like buying, like using computers, like buying furniture and using a, uh, a Mac or an Apple was just like buying it at the store. 
using a PC is like buying an Ikea where you have to like kind of assemble it yourself, but it's all there. Right. And then li- Linux is like going out, chopping down a tree and then whittling a chair out of the log itself. <laughs> like you're starting from <laughs> the true. ground up. Not a bad analogy. Right. You just got to get a raspberry with a nice fast video card. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> takes a lot of work, but yeah. you're proud of it. Yeah. I mean, Kelvin put together my PC I use here and, and the ones we use at the company. Uh, it's wicked fast. And, and I actually, I build a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, on a Mac, I have a, a Mac, uh, a Mac Pro, one of those little, little garbage can Macs. And, um, you know, it's a really sweet little machine. It runs really fast. And then I take everything I build in 3D off of that machine and put it onto the PC and, and put it all together into the game engine. So, but I could put it together in a game engine on a Mac too, and it works just as well. You know, Unreal is very agnostic, uh, as to how you develop with it. Oh, very nice. Um, here's a question. Can we expect to see you guys at any kind of like upcoming conventions or anything? Or do you guys get out much? Um, we get out as much as we can. We're going to be, we're pretty much local right now because we don't have a whole lot of money. Uh, so we're kind of limited where we can actually appear, but we were, we've been down in Boston recently, Southern New Hampshire, Vermont. Uh, we've got a big thing called PortCon this weekend, uh, where we're like almost, almost guests of honor. We're like, you know, uh, that's, uh, it's, Primarily an anime and cosplay um, convention, but the people who run it, Bull Moose, which is the name of this uh, media uh, store, uh, media stores that are here in Bangor, in Maine, and, and in New Hampshire, parts of Massachusetts and Vermont, um, they're they're essentially hosting us, and uh, they host this show. They're the ones who essentially organize PortCon, and um, so they want to start moving that whole thing into more of a game centric thing. And we're going to be one of the first game companies to actually present there and show off the game. So that's this weekend. Uh, we've got a couple of other things. I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to Salt Lake City for the Mysterium Convention, uh, which is in Salt Lake, Lake in August. And that's pretty much a bunch of people who are, are very big Mist fans, and they get together and, and talk all things Mist and Uru, and and um, so they're like a really good audience for us to go and talk to, considering you know. Uh, a lot of people compare us to Mist, in, in at least so far, in fairly favorable ways, which I'm really happy for. Oh, definitely. So, you know, whatever else we can find. You know, I mean, we're, we're limited financially what we can do right now, but if we, you know, get some more money coming in, uh, then it definitely we'll have money, more money for marketing to be able to go to more shows. Sweet, yeah, no, and that convention sounds like a fun time, and it's cool that they're kind of bringing in the gamer community to that because they might as well. It's essentially the same uh, demographic, so that's pretty, pretty cool. Much. Yep. And, uh, a lot of people are really looking forward to, you know, looking forward to us coming down and, and to be myself, Seth and Calvin will be there. And, uh, I think we're doing a panel and I'm, I'm doing a talk on, on making, uh, making a game that, that will look sort of triple A ish, you know, but on a very, very limited budget, you know, with a small indie house. So mm-hmm. that's going to be kind of fun to talk about. Definitely. Um, Bren, do you have any questions before I kind of ask my final question? Sure. Uh, you worked on Ultimate Alliance 2, right? For Marvel? Yes. How is that? Because I remember, I remember that the storyline, at least for that, mostly focused around the Civil War, which is now super popular because of the movie. And I remember thinking, I can't afford all those books. I'm just going to play the game and get the story from that. And it was great. Uh, yeah, I, I started out when I, when I worked at, uh, I took a job of Vicarious Visions. That was the first game I started working on there. Uh, within about three weeks after being there, um, they had a need. They were they were changing the way they managed the teams, uh, managing the studio, and with the you know I came in with a lot of experience, having been in the industry for quite a while. They asked if I would be art group manager, and uh, basically that entailed managing all the artists in the company. And at the time, there was like seventy five artists I think that were working there. Wow! And so I started doing it. Then we had to bring somebody else on to help out. That's just too many artists to keep track of for, you know, quarterly reviews and all the other stuff that goes along with managing a group of people like that. Uh, so between the two of us, we, I took about 35, 40 of the people and then Bob and took the other, the rest of them. Um, but doing the work for that game, when I had a chance to do it, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, the art director, um, that was, uh, on the game was, uh, came up with this. It was kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people at first, but, one of the things he did with all the superhero costumes, um, all the Marvel costumes, was to make them look like real cloth, to make them, you know, not skin tight, you know, leotards and everything mm-hmm. else. He made a conscious decision to change up how the art direction was done with the costumes. And it was amazing. It was really, really good. And eventually a lot of those ideas and designs got picked up, I think, in some of the Marvel movies. And, um, you know, I think so. I think the way that uh, that 
that he designed all that and that the way the game carried it out, it, it helped establish a look and feel that was carried through, I think, in not only the rest of the games, but also in, in the movie uh, world because they started going through trying to make things less tight, I guess, you know, and plasticky looking. But uh, uh, also just with working with the artist on the team, there were some really phenomenal artists that worked on the team. And, and uh, you know, we had a great concept artist and, and working with... Uh, uh, all the developers and, and then also our, our, you know, our special effects team on there. I mean, if you remember all the different powers everybody had, oh, we yeah. were able to combine powers between two characters, you know? Oh, oh wow. yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. That so, awesome. and, and so each time you combine a power, like, like the human torch and, and, uh, any number of other characters, you know, creating a fire tornado or whatever they were creating, mm-hmm. uh, you had to think, uh, think all that had to be planned out ahead of time. And so the design process of that was very, very uh, time-consuming. And uh, there's a huge number of designers on the team, people design, that were just designing uh, combinations of powers and how they would actually work. And so that, that was another aspect of working on that game that was very cool. I uh, was seeing how all that stuff was put together finally towards the end. It was a good project. Yeah. yeah, I always remember the gameplay was kind of like uh bird's eye view sort of like from above you controlled like four heroes at a time right and i remember it was one of the few games i actually got my dad to play because it was co-op uh-huh. and i was always astonished by all the costume designs and how well it looked because it wasn't just like painted onto them it was actual like clothing and i was always a little disappointed because majority of the gameplay is you're way above the characters you're playing so you couldn't see them too well like not all the details except when you change the costumes right right but it did look great yeah, it was, it was just, I mean, the environments were beautiful too. I mean, I thought they did an excellent job of the environments, you know, mm-hmm. and part of my job was assigning artists and, and, uh, into each project. So, you know, when they needed new artists or new equipment and things like that, I made sure they got it. I wasn't doing the art then, but, you know, I got a chance to help at least make sure that they had what they needed. So those organizational skills, did they give you the confidence to start your own studio? Uh, no, I started my own studio because I'm kind of stupid. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I kick myself in the ass all the time for doing this some days. You know, it's a lot of work. I'm kidding. But um, I, it helped a little bit. I mean, managing, you know, what little bit we have. We don't have a lot here. And we all are very collaborative. You know, I mean, uh, the only thing I have as, as, as an owner is I have last say on anything. And so, but typically I take into consideration what everybody else is talking about and, and ideas and that. I think, it, you know, collaboration in a team that's this small is important because, you know, everybody has some value and everybody's gamers. There's everybody in a company is a huge gamer. And so everybody comes in with a lot of ideas. You know, the problem is sometimes just kind of shutting them up. You know, Kelvin, shut up. I don't want to hear it anymore. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's this idea, but he's got to have it done, you know, and, and, I, and he goes away sad and, you know, then I send him flowers and he's okay. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is that making the company, I think, um, uh, doing the management over at um, uh, Vicarious was, was, it was hard work. But it was very satisfying too, you know, until then they started laying people off and I had to fire people. That, that was no fun. Oh, bummer. But, um, uh, the thing was, is that it did, it did give me some skills that help me out right now in, in this company. I mean, I started this company for one reason and one reason only. I, I have game ideas that I want to make. And in order to do that, I need to have a company to be able to, if I can get money to help out with, you know, investment, um, you know, to be able to take advantage of all the different, you know, grants and things like that that might be available to at some point. You know, you have to have a company to do all that. And um, I also want to grow the company. You know, uh, Zed is our first game. Curio will be our second game. And if we are still around five years from now, then I want to do something called Murdoch's World. And so that's kind of the, the line of games I want to do, plus whatever content we develop uh, for the other two games uh, that we'll release for free, most likely, so people can have a, an expanded experience without having to pay for it. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Yeah, I know with the lab, I believe, is the VR sort of demo and game um, Valve release. It was kind of like a portal theme. But one of the features in that is you got a view of the universe and you can like pick up planets and you can rotate them in your hands and stuff. Do you think this is like, you know, with VR, you can do so much more stuff and more experiences with you could kind of combine your two with NASA and with your game company? Definitely, definitely. I think that it's really just limited to our imagination. And I think that once we start, you know, once the game comes out or once we're getting close to being finished with production, one of the, one of the things that you get experience for when, you know, after you've made as many games as I've worked on, um, 
those final stages tend to lead to a lot of ideas and things that if you've got time, you try to implement things. And sometimes that stuff doesn't really come pop into your mind until you're almost done with the game. And there's a lot of stuff I would love to try to do, you know, using a telescope or trying to do something with, with, uh, you know, not planets, but atoms, say, for instance, or Ooh. geology and uh, try to incorporate some of that into it as, as part of either gameplay or just little, you know, not really mini puzzles, but just sort of like, you know, mini activities that might be associated with the game to give it a little bit more life. And uh, by the way, there will be life in the game. There will be things in the game that will be, you know, either crawling around on the ground or on buildings or swimming around behind you in the air, you know, so there'll be stuff in the world to make it feel more alive. Oh, cool. Not full-blown characters. We just don't have the... We don't have a team to do character animations, so you know we're going to be doing, you know, secondary like background life uh, characters and things like that are very easy. You just simply make a couple animations and plop them in there, and then give them a little bit of a behavior, you know, algorithm, make them do whatever they want in Blueprint, and especially with Unreal, and then you can sort of tell it to avoid you, but you'll always be able to see it. It just won't come close to you. So we can do stuff like that, and we plan on doing stuff like that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I feel like somebody, you're going to make something adorable and someone's going to spend the whole game trying to hug it and it's going to be programmed to avoid it and it's going to be their running nightmare. No, see, I had never thought of that, but now you've given me an idea. So <laughs> draw something out tonight and figure out what it is. I'll send you the drawing and then you can tell me if you like it or not. Awesome. Oh, that'd be great. It's just too cute. I have to get it. It's like the game's this way. It's like, but I want to. animals, you know, yeah. marketing, you know, extraneous things that we can sell. <laughs> That's awesome. We had to come up with a mascot idea for something not too long ago. I was like, what about this? We're like, why would we have that? I was like, I just want stuffed animals off this. I, it doesn't have to do anything with the project. Right. But, but just imagine this as a stuffed animal. It would be great. <laughs> yeah, you can sell it in a downloadable store, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. You weren't wrong. It was. It would have been a cute idea. But yeah. um, I guess let's uh let's wrap this episode up with a, a question that I ask most of the game developers we have on our show, but what would your best advice be for someone getting into the game industry? Maybe even someone considering, Oh, I might start my own company or studio. Uh, what would you say to those people? Well, if you're getting into the industry, you know, right out of high school, or if you've been in college a year or two and you want to get into the game industry, you first of all have to figure out what do you want to do in the game industry? You know, I hear so often, oh, I want to get into the game industry from all these kids. And what do you want to do? Oh, no, I just want to make games. You know, well, there's a lot to making a game. There's a lot of things that go into it. Do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be a programmer? Do you want to be a designer? You know, do you want to be a producer? Uh, it doesn't really matter. But every, you know, those these various disciplines take a lot of time to learn how to do every one of them. And a lot of time to learn how to do them well. And I would just recommend that you pick something, you focus on one aspect of games that you like. And then you look to colleges that may offer classes or, or courses in that or a curriculum based around that. I mean, like the Ringling School or Savannah College of Art and Design, Pittsburgh, uh, I guess, uh, University of Vermont and, and Burlington, University of Southern New Hampshire. All these schools have game curriculum uh, programs there. So find out what it is you want to do and then make a decision and then just look for a school that's going to give you the best opportunity to do that. Now, if you can't afford school, you, you can also start your own company. And I recommend uh, a lot of times when students come up to me that if, you know, I, I can't find a, I can't find a game company here in Maine, you know, and I, I can't leave the state, but how do I, how do I work in the industry? And I say, well, you know, get together some people that you trust and that you like. And, and if you guys are all gamers, start thinking about a game yourself, something, you know, what would you want to play? What would your game look like? And to think about it and map it out, get a big whiteboard, start drawing out ideas, you know, start figuring out a mechanic or the gameplay. Is it a scroller? Is it a first-person shooter? Is it a is it a walkabout? You know, or is it first person, third person, tower defense? I mean, think of what it is that you like to do and then design a game based around that. Find an artist if you're a designer or a programmer, somebody who can actually translate what you guys are thinking into something tangible that you can actually use. Because no one's going to sell a game that looks like crap. You know, I mean, you, you can have a really awesome game, and there might be some games that will, if they're not the artisan, the best, but people are visually oriented, so you need a good, strong, you know, at least a, a good sense of art. You know, somebody has to be a fairly decent artist to do it, animators, whatever. So that would be my advice. And honestly, starting your own game company um, with the software nowadays, it's almost all free, you know, at least to start off. They start making money when, like, Unreal, for instance, you know, we use that for everything. And and Unreal uh, will take 5% of what we make once we sell, I think, 100,000 units. 
So that's that's really good. It's worth the investment in us and giving them 5% because their software is allowing us to make our game. Unity is another one. Uh, Valve has, you know, uh, I mean, there's just there's so many different engines out there that you can use to do that. So all you need are ideas and the engines are there. You come up with an idea and organize it and work together with a, a small team of friends. That's probably the best way to go. And then there are games that people are doing by themselves, too, that are pretty amazing. So just, you know, you have to have a passion for it, though. You have to have a passion for creating. You know, if you don't have that passion to create and don't have the passion to put the long hours in, uh, you know, you're never going to be successful because it does take a lot of time. And uh, there is a bit of sacrifice sometimes in your personal life if you're trying to really get something done, you know, that works well, that's going to be successful. Oh, such words of wisdom. Thank you so much for that. But seriously, that was uh, an amazing summary of uh, advice and I think extremely valuable to some of our listeners. Well, great. I can agree. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where can our listener find you? I guess we should do some official plugs. Uh, maybe plug the Kickstarter one more time. Sure. Well, you can go to, if you go to kickstarter.com, uh, just go into the search, the, the little, you know, click on the magnifying glass. And just type in Zed, Z-E-D. That will take you directly to Zed the game. And then you can, you know, become a backer. And please back us. We could use your help. You know, we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting up fairly close, but we still need a lot of help to make the finish line. So you can go to Kickstarter, search for Zed, Z-E-D, and bam, they'll find us right there. Or you can go to eagergames.com and, uh, eager is spelled E-A-G-R-E games. Com. So that's E-A-G-R-E games.com. And you'll have all the links to who we are, what we do, uh, the Kickstarter, previews of parts of the game, downloadable content. So all that stuff's available through those two sites. Excellent. And uh, Bren, where can listeners find you? Uh, mostly at ABTS Brendan on Twitter. And that's about it. Okay. And if you enjoy our show, please give us a like or follow on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle's ABT Silence. I'm personally Twitch streaming every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at twitch.tv slash ABT Silence. And we really can't thank you enough for joining us tonight, Chuck. We hope to stay in touch. Yeah, I mean, you've worked with NASA, with Marvel. You've made your own video game company. You're living out every nine-year-old's dream. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll tell that to my girlfriend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was an awesome way to wrap that up. But thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Take care. Bye.